This podcast was proudly brought to you by Bioceuticals, leaders in nutraceuticals and education for healthcare professionals. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Datis Karazian. He's a clinical research scientist, academic professor, and a functional medicine healthcare provider. He's associate clinical professor at Loma Linda University School of Medicine, a research fellow at Harvard Medical School, and a researcher at the Department of Neurology at Mass General Hospital. Dr. Karazian earned a PhD degree in health science concentrating on immunology and toxicology and a Doctor of Health Science degree from Nova Southeastern University. He completed his postdoctoral research training at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital. And Dr. Karazian earned a Master of Science degree in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport a Doctor of Chiropractic degree from Southern California University of Health Science and a Master of Medical Sciences degree in Clinical Investigation from Harvard Medical School. Dr. Karazian, I warmly welcome you to FX Medicine. How are you today? Very well. Thank you for having me on. It's our pleasure. Now, today we're going to be discussing why autoimmune disease patients just don't get better. So I guess we start off with... What's the real issue going on with autoimmune immune treatments? Sure. I think the first thing that I think is important to understand is for practitioners is that autoimmune disease, for the most part, is a disease that can go into remission, but it's not curable. No one has figured out how to actually cure autoimmune disease. So it's one of these chronic inflammatory diseases that flares up and a patient can go into remission and feel like they're cured at some point. However, there's always that susceptibility to, to flare up again. But I think one of the frustrating things that uh, the patient may not understand or the practitioner may understand is that it's an ongoing battle, that once the genes uh, it's turn on for autoimmunity and there's multiple genes and multiple triggers that change the expression of the phenotype into an autoimmune disease, then there is uh, this ongoing susceptibility. So that's why you know the word cure is such a strong word, and it's so harmful to patients when they're trying to think that, you know, they're going to clear out their heavy metals and they're going to be cured, or they're going to fix their gut and they're going to be cured. Those things don't necessarily cure. They just decrease the immunological load on an individual. For some people, it can be helpful. For other people, it can have no effect. So I think the, the, the real thing to first understand about why autoimmune disease patients don't get better is, you know, it's actually clearly a un- uncurable condition. Yeah. And these relapse remissions are part of the disease. Can we talk a little bit about the variable triggers and initiation of the various autoimmune diseases? Like you've got, you know, juvenile arthrit- rheumatoid arthritis and then you've got lupus and so many others, obviously. But, you know, why is there such a vast variance in when the autoimmune disease is triggered? Sure. So what we know about autoimmune disease in the research world is that there's multiple genes involved, that there's not one gene. So there could be an HGLA-DQ gene, there could be a single nucleotide polymorphism, 
There could be some um, genes associated with specific T-cell responses. And it's a combination of these genes in combination with many variables that can include things like chemical exposure pathogens and uh, various things that cause immune dysregulation all happening together that's been shown to then turn on the onset of the disease. So it's multifactorial susceptibility and multifactorial triggers that then turn on the autoimmune disease. Now, there are certain specific pathogens that are susceptible individuals that have been shown to turn on different diseases. There's definitely chemical triggers. Um, There's lifestyle triggers that play a huge role. And I think for most people, they kind of think of the last thing that was the final blow. Mm. But very clear that it's multifactorial, multivariant variables that turn on the disease with multifactorial genetic susceptibility. That's why it's so difficult to uh, cure. It's also so difficult to um, clearly find one insult that does it. Is there any work on looking at the multiple insults that are needed or that are required to um, cause the perfect storm? They, They are absolutely looking into those things. So what they can do now is they can say, for example, if you have a, uh, HLA-DQ genotype, you have a 20% increased risk for this autoimmune disease. But they don't know what all the variables are. So they can find individual variables that impact autoimmune disease, but they haven't figured out how they all stack up together. And to be quite honest, it's going to require machine learning, and uh, it's too complicated unless we use equipment. And we still need data to actually figure out what to put into the machine. So we're really, really far away from figuring that out in the world of research. Uh, of that, but we do know people develop autoimmune diseases. We just don't know what all the um, the variables are, and yeah. that's what makes it so difficult and frustrating. Talking about gut priming, I'm aware of uh, you know the work by Dan Littman and others, Ivalio Ivanov at um, New York State Uni in Columbia, I think it was, um, with regards mm-hmm. to. And I do bang on about this. Forgive me, Datisa, in FX Medicine, that is these <laughs> segmented filamentous bacteria. Um, priming the um, TH17 and, and possibly priming autoimmunity. Do you know of sure. any work that's being done in this area in humans? Yeah, of course. There's specific regions within the world of autoimmunity where people are doing research. So there's some people that are looking uh, molecular mimicry. Um, there's people that are looking at what are called epitope spreading. There's people that are looking at what's called uh, T-cell differentiation, which is what you're talking about. Yep. There's people that are looking at uh, B-cell propagation. There's people that are looking at citrullination. So there's actually dozens of these models. Um, what happens is sometimes when you speak to one of them, you think that's the model for all of it, and it's really not. So um, there's at least 20 well-known mechanisms that, that, that cannot turn on autoimmune disease. Activation of uh, the TH17 is just falls under the categories of T-cell proliferation, where you have different T-cells that can active. And and for some autoimmune diseases, the gut is really a big deal. And for autoimmune diseases, the gut is is, is, is not really the main issue. And this is what we also see clinically. For some patients that come in, their gut's perfect. And right. uh, for other people, it, it makes a life-changing uh, clinical impact on them when they clean up their gut on their autoimmune disease. So I think that's a problem we have tried to do in functional medicine and, and is kind of ignore all the research. And then try to come up with a model of like, it's really just leaky gut, it's really just uh, a pathogen, it's really just dysbiosis, and it's it's not necessarily any one of those things, but it's all of those things, and it can be different things or different parts of those things for different people. So that's what's, and that's the reality of autoimmunity. Um, 
when you kind of really read up onto it and really read what, what's happening in the immunology world, if you go to an autoimmune scientific conference where different researchers speak. And I think what the difference is in functional medicine, we try to pin it down to a few things that are part of the picture, but it's not the entire picture. And it's definitely unique for each individual. So there could be some people that get pathogenic bacteria and that turns on their TH17 as part of it. That could be a trigger for an autoimmune disease, for example, in combination with susceptibility and other variables. So the most dangerous words are, it's just that, <laughs> quote, unquote. <laughs> exactly. That's, that, that's, that's the, for myself, that's what I see so frustrating with what people are talking about and doing is they just get, they, they explain one model and they get reference for a model and it's like, yeah, that is one part of the picture of the autoimmune world, but it's not the, it's not all of it. And that doesn't apply to all individuals. So, for example, one autoimmune process unrelated to the gut microbiome is called citrullination. And this is where arginine transforms to a new protein that then becomes a new antigen or neoantigen. And they know that like a gingivalis infection, gum disease, can trigger that, that process. And then that process is found to really express in uh, joint cartilage. And it's one of the mechanisms for RA completely unrelated to the gut microbiome, just from the gum, just from the oral mucosa. So, wow. um, and again, that has to happen to others. That has to happen with susceptibility for that person because not even with gum disease gets a citrullination process that takes place. So once again, it's, it's, it's genes plus multiple genes plus finally that trigger that has been shown to do it. Um, so that's, that's what's kind of interesting about autoimmunity because each, 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 each in a clinical setting that's so, that's so different about it. For some people, managing their gum disease may be one way to manage their autoimmunity. For other people, will be working on their microbiome. For other people, um, they may have a process called haptination, where they can't clear chemicals out of their yeah. body well. Yep. Chemicals bind to proteins, they become new antigens. For them, biotransformation, liver cleanses could be a big part of how they go into remission. So um, that, that's the thing about it. It's, it's fairly complex, and it's not one variable. And it's different from one person. And the person coming in with an autoimmune disease, um, let's say RA or MS, doesn't tell us which way to, to go through it. it each any of those mechanisms are all possible yeah. to some degree. Can you explain something for me about haptonization? Is a, Am I correct in this thinking that when people say I'm allergic to iodine, for instance, they're usually not? Yeah. I mean, you can't be allergic to iodine. But there's some degree of, am I correct here, haptonization there that is causing this link to an inert mineral or something? Well, remember, you can only develop uh, antibody to cause an immune response to the actual protein itself. That's your protein. So um, different compounds can bind to proteins. They can change the structure of the protein, and that's what's called haptonization. Right. right. So uh, some of the research we published uh, out of Harvard Medical School was looking into things like BPA plastics and how plastics can bind to albumin, which is the most abundant protein in circulation, and that creates a new antigen. And then we showed that that can directly um, be associated with development of neurological autoantibody and uh, also associated with Parkinson's disease development from an autoimmune perspective. So that's 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 cause of haptonation. Now, iodine, um, you know, we know that iodine has been shown to be a clear trigger for Hashimoto's disease even though many people like to use iodine for thyroid disorders. But iodine also activates um, the synthesis of TPO, thyroid peroxidase, yep. the enzyme yep. to make TPO and T3. 
And then the target protein for Hashimoto's is TPO. Right. So one of the theories is that for some of these people that have flares up, it's really the iodine that increases the TPO synthesis. Um, it's possible that iodine can bind to different structures and, and change the protein, but um, I've never really read too much about that. I don't have. Uh, so when we're talking about realistic prognoses for autoimmune it, autoimmune disease. I mean, really what we're trying yeah. to do is thwart the accepted normograph, if you like, I guess, of decline. And with autoimmune diseases, I mean, the first question we always like to ask clinically is where's the rest of it? Because usually when they have one autoimmune disease, they have other autoantibodies that they aren't aware of. So what we like to do in a clinical setting is to then screen for other tissue antibodies. Sometimes their history really gives us clues of what's going on. Sometimes we just do a general screen. And then we really find that um, most people that to have one autoimmune, like for example, they have Hashimoto's, they have RA, they'll have autoantibodies to other target proteins that they don't even know is really is, 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 is a potential for becoming an autoimmune disease. And then the next question is, what are the triggers? And you're ultimately left with dietary triggers, lifestyle triggers, pathogen triggers, um, and chemical triggers, and then just general immune uh, health, which relates to the gut and T cells and B cells. And then you're trying to massage all that through a history, medical history and a physical exam and lab work and then kind of figure out the right approach. And um, a lot of times the patient will just tell you, like they will tell you that their autoimmunity flares up if they just don't get enough sleep. There's lots of associations between circadian rhythms and, and how sleep impacts uh, immune cell priming and yeah. immune modulation. Mm. And for other people, it's, it's very clear to protein exposure. And for other people... They've eliminated all foods, and there's no difference in their autoimmunity, and and and, and it's not foods. And for other people, it's um, a chemical exposure, a combination of multiple things, um, and that's that's what's the autoimmune clinically so hard to manage. I'm imagining your intake form, and I'm imagining that it would be a small book. <laughs> no, it, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's any different than a normal functional medicine history. No. Um, and obviously, we want to look at all those things, but there's a point where um, we want to look at, like you said, uh, the big picture. So yeah, I mean, we do we do use, uh, I guess, some good intake forms, but um, you know, it's still you know, with autoimmune disease management uh, in my practice, when I work with my patients, I tell them we don't know. There's going to be lots of trial and error. We're going to try to go through the most uh, common mechanisms that could be triggers from you, but we'll have to spend some time figuring out. And we'll have to work through your case and then try to figure out how to get you in remission. And then once you're in remission, um, how to monitor you, make sure you don't progress further. And then yeah. if you do have flare-ups, which are inevitable, how do we put you on a protocol right away to have you recover as soon as possible? And um, that's kind of the, the big picture, at least for me, when I work with autoimmune uh, patients suffering from autoimmunity. I mean, it is... It is uh, it is a complex condition. I think it could be one of the most complex conditions. It's certainly as complex as cancer and and other um, non-curable diseases out there. Mm. Can I ask, with regards to machine learning, which you mentioned earlier, do yeah. you think maybe the future might hold promise with you know managing autoimmune conditions by? Uh, let's say different data sets. You know, you, you're mentioning sleep. You were mentioning gut. We've spoken about oral hygiene. Um, if yeah. there was some way of collecting this data amongst 
you know, do you, do you concentrate on just one autoimmune condition or do you get it across the breadth? And maybe, you know, letting um, artificial intelligence in the future work out which has the most bang for buck. Yeah, this is actually something they are doing at Harvard Medical School. They have a bioinformatics uh, research division and they're looking at doing these for multiple diseases, including autoimmunity, where they can track weather of uh, pollutants in an area where the patient's been in. They can look at their food intake. They can look at a trigger and they can keep that data, and then they have oh, wow. uh, different algorithms where they can start to program and fine-tune to then look for flare-ups. They're already doing that, but the easiest uh, example is asthma. So they already have apps where yeah. they can track where the patient is in relation to pollution and different pollutants in the air, and then start to be able to give them warnings when they, they, they know when they get a trigger. They start to get warnings when they get exposed to that. That's already a part of uh, personalized lifestyle apps with machine learning and algorithms. So um, that's pretty cool. So I think I think eventually in the future that is definitely what's going to happen. And I was going to ask also, how does a patient with autoimmunity present clinically? And I guess alongside yeah. that, you were talking about earlier, um, you know, how patients say they don't get enough sleep and then the next day their symptoms flare. What about delayed symptoms? So to answer your first part, how do autoimmune disease patients present? Um, the first part is they have a huge list of everyone they've seen. They see a huge list of talented practitioners. Um, they've all thought it was one thing or another. Some thought it was their microbiome. Some thought it was their leaky gut. Some thought it was who knows what. And they, they've all tried their interventions. They may have had some results here and there. patient continues to have good and bad days and flare-ups. Some things have made a difference for their life, and they're happy to have figured out those things, but they're still suffering. They usually have a huge list of supplements, um, countless supplements that they're just taking out of desperation. They usually have noticed reactions to foods. They've been limited to a lot of foods. Some are already on a very restricted diet. And many of them don't actually know they have an autoimmune disease. They just think they're, they have this weird illness no one has, has figured out yet. But, but in fact, they do. So there's a group of uh, pot patients that don't know they have an autoimmune disease with that history, and then there's some that finally know they have an autoimmune disease, but they don't know the autoimmune disease is impacting all their other symptoms that they may be having. So that's how they um, typically present. Um, and over the second part of your question, I'm sorry. Um, with regards to delayed symptoms rather than immediate pre- um, symptoms. Yeah, that's that's very true. So one of the things we that depending on the autoimmune mechanism, you could have an exposure retriever, and then you may have a response several days later. I mean, the, the best, easiest example is like a food, immune food-related yeah. uh, issue or delayed response um, that could get exposed to food and not, not have the flare-up until a few days later. Um, and then there could be issues associated with um, other variables that combine together, so it's even hard to track them one thing. So that's one thing. And some of the research that was published uh, by Vigidani, he showed, for example, certain food proteins don't become antigenic until you combine them together. Right. So, he did, he did a study where he looked at, let's say, cheese, wheat, and uh, and sausage or meat, and then uh, and then he found what percent of reaction was, and then he combined them together in that lysoplate, which is a pizza, all cooked together, and then there was a significant trigger with a large population um, of the study that didn't respond to each of the triggers individually. So that's what makes it difficult. Okay, so then to try and treat that, I mean, you know, it's impossible to think about different combinations. I mean, you're you're into codes here. But if you went yeah. back to the gut and you said, okay, well, let's try and, 
give the re- the gut some resilience. Is that a reasonable, um, you know, foundation of of treatment? Yeah, and, and I don't mean to. Um, I don't like being to seem like I don't think the gut has an impact. The gut has a major impact on me disease, and um, you know, the the more immunological tolerance a person has, the less reactive they are, for example, to foods or a combination of food proteins. So in the world of uh, immunology and autoimmunity, there's a concept called oral tolerance. And right. oral tolerance is how active your um, immune system becomes to exposure to different triggers. So oral tolerance is specific to food proteins. So we know, for example, if a person eats a food protein, um, that protein can trigger an antibody response and then trigger the autoimmune response. But that food protein can only trigger it while it's a protein structure. And the antibodies bind to protein structures, not to amino acids. So if someone isn't digesting their proteins, they have um, inability to break down the proteins to individual amino acids, which tends to be non-reactive, then that their enzyme deficiency can make them much, much more susceptible to, to foods and immune triggers. So something as simple as just taking digestive enzymes can be a huge impact for some people that have autoimmune disease because now they're breaking down that uh, protein structure that antibodies can bind to individual amino acids more efficiently. Um, they got microbiome has a major impact on uh, regulatory T-cell function. And, and much of the research being published right now on the microbiome shows the more diverse the microbiome is, the less reactive intestinal T-cells are yeah. to food proteins. So there's there's lots of little you know things that happen in the gut, whether it's regulatory T-cells in the gut or microbiome diversity or enzyme breakdown or dendritic cell activity. Um, these things are all important. And... And as you do the workup for autoimmune disease patients, you have to go through each of these factors one by one um, and, and see if, if a patient does respond to each of these individual variables. Um, but it, it is an important part of autoimmune function. But there are definitely people that that is not the mechanism for their autoimmunity um, to go through remission. Um, there's other things besides the gut that are factors. I'm going to ask a dangerous question because I'm not one given to excessive testing and, and wasting, you know, in, in some cases hundreds and, th- sure. and thousands of dollars in, in certain individuals on useless testing. But would there perhaps be, here we go, it's, it's, a, it's a wish um, for, say, in the future, would there be a, a test or a simple array of tests where you could say, hey, listen, you're on a downward trend with your autoimmune disorder. You're starting to flare. There's definitely those tests, and the key thing is to do what's called a cytokine-stimulated test. And if you do a cytokine-stimulated test, um, what they do is they they take a person's blood. We could do this in the lab. They take a person's blood. You isolate out the T cells, and then you put the T cells in a dish, and then you activate it by uh, antigen, usually something like pokeweed or something. And then that T cell releases cytokines, and then you can measure the cytokines um, with uh, different types of equipment. And then when you with the flow cytometry, and then when you measure the cytokines, you can see what the immune system is primed into. So one of the most important ratios is this. Uh, TH3 to TH17 ratio. So TH3 cells, which are regulatory T cells, help hormone autoimmunity, and TH17 promote the inflammatory response. And then TH17 cells release things like IL-17, and regulatory T cells release things like TGF-beta. So there's ratios between these different cytokines between TH3 and TH17, and 
they find that if a person has higher TH3 activity, they're in, they're in remission and they're going to stay in remission. And if they're they switch to a higher TH17 and T T reg, they're about to flare up. Right. So that that is one of the most sensitive markers. Unfortunately, um, there hasn't been enough commercial labs to offer this test. It's it's, it's kind of still in the research um, world, but. Uh, you know these tests are expensive, and, and I think for the most part they don't they don't seem it's marketable right. to the population. But that would be the most sensitive test, and you could literally do a blood draw and then figure out where you're headed. And yeah. if you're uh, in a stressful period, you can look at your ratios and go, "Oh my God, I'm about to have a flare up." Yeah, yeah. Of course, then you have to have the appropriate management to to coincide sure. with that to, to get them back on track. Yeah. But, and if your regulatory T cell function is 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 great, then you know you're doing all the right things. So, you know, since it's autoimmunity, you just don't know because there's so many variables. You don't know if the things you're doing are starting to get you to where you need to be. So you could have someone who figures out what type of exercise they can do without crashing and how long they can do it without falling apart, and then that really helps their autoimmunity. And then they find out that there's a food, a few food proteins like gluten or nightshades they can't eat. They remove those. Then they find out if they cut out a little bit, if they can get some sleep, um, that could be a big issue for them. And then those factors all add up, and they're kind of starting to feel better, but they're not really sure. And if they had that T-Rec measurement and they start to see their T-Rec function go up, it would be a home run to know they're on the right right path. Um, Forgive me for asking you to repeat this, but what were the ratios of, you know, let's say good versus bad? I know this is very simplistic, but even if we could just have a guide, some yardsticks? Yeah. Um, so it's going to depend. I mean, the thing is, you have to kind of, if you, you can't just kind of use a, a lab um, to measure IL-17 and TGF-beta randomly because they have to be done from the same T-cell. Ah. You can't just be circulation of levels. Right. What labs are doing right now is they're measuring these cytokines in blood, and, and you have to have extreme levels in blood to show extreme cytokine activation to show these levels high in blood. That's why you have to do what's called that uh, cytokine-stimulated test or T-cell stimulated test. Yeah. And that way, you can isolate to the cell in a dish. That's why it's also it's expensive and that's why it's not commercially available. But that would be, they can bring that cost down and people can just do like a finger prick with blood and send that in. That would be probably wow. the future of looking, yeah. Wow, that would be really, really good. I think it'll get there. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. <laughs> but also... What's been published in the literature already is they, they look at acute phase reactants on blood work. Yeah. And acute phase reactants like uh, um, homocysteine, I'm sorry, C-reactor protein and serum ferritin, and even uh, ESR levels have been shown to start to elevate from baseline before a flare-up. So the, the key thing there is that it's not just outside the lab range, but like if you know where your baseline C-reactor protein is and you know your, what your baseline ferritin levels are, if you start to see them go up, that could be a strong indicator that uh, that there's about to be an autoimmune flare-up. Yeah, obviously CRP is used in, I'm going to say, gross amounts, if you like, with Crohn's disease, for instance. Yeah. But what about HSCRP? Yep. Would that be a, a more sensitive indicator yeah. of something's going to happen, or is you just measure CRP? You can, or well, highly sensitive CRP, I think for most people, would, would be the preferred test. Gotcha. And it's just better, better technology, but... Um, you know, some labs are just saying they're not clear distinguishing anymore between highly sensitive CRP and CRP because everyone's starting to use highly sensitive CRP. Might be different in Australia, but in the US, they're right. They're not 
making those clear on lab reports because they're all using flea sensitive therapy now. Gotcha. So now we need to speak about treatment. Where do we go from here? The, the key thing is you have to have a very um, proactive patient, and you have to have, and, and you have to have a patient that's very observant, and then you're basically trying to um, do one variable at a time. And you know the basic concept is for them to have more good days and bad days. Uh, and it's different if you're doing treatment in, in a, an acute flare-up scenario versus the kind of in and out of remission, and you can try to maybe keep him in remission for, let's say, several months. Maybe even keeping him in remission for a month straight would be an ideal scenario. Maybe they're having RNA and their joint pain is really active, and you figure out a combination of things clinically, or their joint pain goes away for the next eight weeks, then they get exposed to something, then the trigger becomes much easier to identify. Um, so, and it can change from time to time. So that's what makes autoimmune disease so frustrating because it's not caused by a single nutrient deficiency and it's caused by multi-variables that uh, impact multiple genetic susceptibilities and it's dynamic and changing all the time. Datis, what about the effects of, you know, the new kids on the block? These are the blockbuster drugs of the age, the monoclonal antibodies. Um, I've sometimes heard, for instance a drug used in, again, Crohn's, um, adalimumab. Some people say that the quote-unquote effect effect wears off. Do you find this is real or do you find this is just part of the actual autoimmune disease? Oh, there's definitely people who will take medications that block the immunological pathway or they'll take a monoclonal antibody um, and they will have a beneficial effect on their autoimmune expression. The, the issue with it for most patients is that they don't have an ongoing um, ongoing effect because the immune system tends to outsmart the drug over a very short period of time. Uh, right. So that's, that's, that's the difficulty with it. So, And some of the most aggressive drugs are also one of the side effects that they make a person very immune susceptible. So uh, in most of these trials that are done have been done for short term and, and long term studies really show that um, Sometimes the immune system gets more activated, more inflamed, and then they try to go off. There's other side effects and uh, other issues with it. So um, in the past, you know, the basic product, the basic thing was just to use steroids, which shut down the whole immune system. And like you're saying now, they're basically using different types of medications to inhibit specifically T cells or B cells, or they target specific B cells with monoclonal antibodies. And um, where they specifically block uh, TNF-alpha um, um, and, and for some people, it, it really does help them. And uh, what we find is the best use of those types of medications for people that have very serious autoimmune diseases, like demyelinating MS, where they end up in a wheelchair, yeah. and they get a flower up, is to use them in acute crisis care and then really focus on diet, nutrition, lifestyle, you know, at other times. Because the other problem is when there's these immune system activations and flare ups. The immune system can can prime itself and wind up even further and further, never recover back to baseline. Right. And at times, as they destroy tissues, surrounding tissues um, start to then develop autoimmune against them. This is what's called a bystander effect. Uh-huh. So you may, for example, have antibodies against you have MS against myelin basic protein, but as the inflammation destroys myelin, it also starts to destroy the protein structure within neurons. Now you also have develop antibodies to break down a synapse and now you get synapse and autoimmunity. Now the autoimmunity is much worse and much more progressive. So, you know, for me as a person who, you know, practices functional medicine and, 
um, is, is definitely not um, primary pharmaceutical treatment for most things. I mean, an integrative approach, and especially pharmacology, can be can be can be very helpful for some people with very serious autoimmune diseases. But at the same time, you can't ignore how diet and lifestyle impact autoimmune disease. I mean, it's a it's a well known mechanism. You know, what's funny is that I work with the Institute of Functional Medicine, and they did a survey a few years ago, and they asked how the physicians in that group got interested in functional medicine. And the number one answer was they or their family member got sick. Yeah. <laughs> and then they were looking for their, their own options. That's right. And then all, all of a sudden they were willing to try some vitamin D. They were willing to, you know, try a probiotic for the first time. But they would never, ever in their entire career in practice ever recommend that or read a paper on it. So there's that total... Um, human uh, characteristic that comes out, you know. Yeah. It's different when it's you. But again, I, I guess another aspect of this is you'll get people that, for instance, got sick themselves, let's say chronic fatigue or Hashimoto's or yeah. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and then they looked into it for themselves, their family members. That's fine for EDS yeah. or for whatever their disease they have. But what about another one? Yeah. What about somebody with Hashimoto's, which they haven't got? When you really look at so many patients suffering out there because they don't have anyone to guide them, and they just you know don't don't know even know where to start to get accurate information, and um, the, the, you know the internet's filled with like simple solutions to yeah. a complex situation that's yeah. not simple. So and this is the problem with research and studies too, because when you look at, uh, for example, when you look at most studies, they're they're done to be as generalizable to the population as much as possible. And they're looking for one change, like a change in blood pressure or something. Yeah, right. um, and autoimmunity is not that simple. And it's multifactorial and it's dynamic and it's changing. So in the world of research, there's something called NF1 trials, where you look at a patient, you measure certain biomarkers, and you do a multivariate treatment, multiple things at once, which is what we do in functional medicine. And then you monitor them over time, and those things can change. And that's really the real clinical model that, uh, and the real research model that can apply to autoimmunity. Right. So it's like, it's a thing. So what happens with practitioners, they, you know, I kind of label, some practitioners, you could, they, they kind of label themselves. They become the heavy metal, leak, you know, chelator. They become microbiome expert. They become the adrenal exhaustion guru. And then they see every disease that way. And then that's why, and then the, those types of models don't work for autoimmunity. I mean, they have a limited effect, I should say. Yeah. Not of me. So I guess this carries on to my next question, and that's what's the biggest mistake that practitioners make who are working with autoimmune disease? And I guess we've already said it, that they oversimplify it. There's that, you know, one thing or another, yep. or it's just that. What other yep. mistakes do you see practitioners making that we really need to wake up about? Um, one of the big mistakes is they do too much at once. Um, I can tell you for myself, working with autoimmune disease patients for over 20 years, um, with a very comprehensive digital approach from day one, was and the only thing I can be really proud of over the years is I don't make autoimmune disease as flared up as I used to. I mean, I'm really proud of that. That's a huge accomplishment for me as a clinician. Right. It's so easy to, you know, give patients multiple supplements, multiple things, and they react against all of them. Yeah. Or react against all of them. So... I think the key thing with autoimmune disease management in the clinical setting is you have to kind of go uh, work through step by step by step and then create the environment for the patient to understand. You, you have to do a multi-variable um, treatment model, but you, ha you can't do all of them at once. 
you have to kind of filter through and see what they respond to, what they don't. You kind of like, you know, you're pushing and pulling, tugging away at different areas of the autoimmune web to see how you can untangle it. So I think um, a, a key, uh, one of the key mistakes is just being too aggressive at once and not uh, working through it slowly. Another mistake is making uh, unrealistic expectations. That can completely make a case fail because the patient loses all trust and their spirit gets broken because they think that, you know, when their levels of mercury on their chelation challenge sheets goes away, that they should be better, but they're not, you know. Or when their GI panel doesn't have a pathogen anymore, that they should be better when they're not. Yeah. So um, those are big mistakes. And that happens every single day. And I think for all of us that practice functional medicine, when we see an autoimmune disease patient come in, they all have huge files. They all have the last the list of things they've all done and how they were treated. And it's very clear to see that these mistakes happen every day. Yeah. Oh, you, were, you were mentioning that you know, patients often react to the supplements that they're given. You, when, yeah. you, when you see that there's a lot of immune cells close to the skin and guarded by the very tough stratum corneum, what do you think there might be of the facility of perhaps doing, a say, a scratch test with a multivitamin? Well, I mean, when you look at, uh, when you look at uh, immune supplements, the, 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 the main issue isn't always like um, an immune response, yeah. in a sense, from yeah. an antibody sensitivity. Remember, a skin test is only going to measure an IgE-mediate response. Right. If it's an IgE, then it's not an issue. The biggest thing with supplements is that um, like sometimes you'll give someone a supplement has 20 ingredients in them, and one of the ingredients in there is like a mataki mushroom or echinacea, yeah. which then stimulates their T-cells, and they don't even realize that their T-cells are being stimulated, or and then they get a flare-up. Uh-huh. Or they'll take a supplement and... Uh, the filler in there it says modified food starch. And it's actually it's actually gluten. Is the filler in the supplement? Uh, so sometimes it's contaminants from poorly made supplements, and sometimes it's uh, there's a immune activating supplements in there. And there's also a lot of contamination in supplements and plant compounds um, that that we know about. So we know, for example, in California, uh, we have a proposition that was passed, uh, Prop 65, which which doesn't allow any any chemical compounds in any supplements here, and uh, and that's difficult to do because some plants typically have a little bit of natural occurring chemicals in them. <laughs> so there's some ingredients manufacturers can't even use anymore in California because of um, worldwide toxicity. You know, um, like rice rice protein. If you if you test any kind of rice protein, doesn't matter where you get your source of rice protein. Um, most most of it will have some contamination with arsenic or lead yeah. to some degree. Now, there's normal contamination in foods that we eat all the time just because of the environment. But um, for some people, um, the supplement will have some type of, uh, could have a chemical. It could be an immune stimulant. It could have a filler that's an issue with them. Or sometimes they just can't handle too much um, immune support at once, you know, and right. that becomes uh, for them, you know. So it could indeed just be the the facility of their immune system not handling it. Yeah, I mean, even with really high quality supplements, I mean, it's not always uh, contaminators. One one of the things that we're quite proud of in Australia is the due diligence and the surveillance of the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, which differs from the FDA. I understand. But what you're saying is that some of these issues, like, for instance, rice protein, it doesn't matter where you source it from. It's going to have some level of contamination with a heavy metal. Absolutely. Right. Just what the guidelines are. If the guidelines are, 
it can only have enough contamination, which is found in normally occurring rice, then some some guidelines will allow that to be used. You know, like yeah. in, in any every other state in, in the United States, that can be done in manufacturing. In California, it's not permitted anymore. Right. Because they pass like no levels, not even natural occurring, you know, levels of contamination. How, how do they eat rice? So that, <laughs> Well, they can eat rice. They can eat rice, but now you have to have warnings on rice and food products in California, or you can't sell them. Wow! So it's different than the rest of the United States. And there's also lots of manufacturers who completely ship moved out of California. <laughs> it's new law. Wow! They can't manufacture. many supplements in California will actually have to have warning labels on them because they're not following the the guidelines that this, that these may contain carcinogenic compounds and other things in them, which makes difficult for anyone buying a nutritional supplement to want to take it. Yeah, absolutely. Just along that um, molecular mimicry concept, I remember attending a talk by Professor Alan Ebringer when he was, where he was talking about the association or, or the, um, the cross-reactivity between, uh, I think it was Klebsiella and AS. Um, where is this going? Where has it led since then? Is, it, is, it, is that still true or is it, has it moved on from there? Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole list of uh, if you, there's many review papers now on, um, available on uh, National Library of Medicine, uh, PubMed, you know, yep. uh, scientific literature where they 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 have definitely reviewed and linked many pathogens to very specific autoimmune diseases, and uh, those those occur when when a person makes an antibody against let's say a pathogen. Those antibodies can be similar enough to the protein of the pathogen as a cell tissue, but the antibody for the pathogen binds to a cell tissue structure, and then that causes the autoimmune disease flare-up. So we did some research where we purified 204 proteins, and we found all the different cross-reactivity with uh, food proteins, 200 most common foods consumed with uh, thyroid autoimmunity and with type 1 diabetes, and we published that research. So um, that becomes a major clinical strategy when you're dealing with someone who's got Hashimoto's and they're already on an autoimmune paleo diet and they don't know what else to eat mm. or they have type 1 diabetes. So that's some specific research that I've done um, and published that uh, I've put into clinical practice and use that I'd like to share with people. And, uh, and just the applications from other research on molecular memory is also important to do. Um, which, for example, like I said, pathogens for specific autoimmune diseases. What about things like sure. interstitial cystitis? And if an antibiotic knocks out the infection, does it knock out yep. the priming, or is the priming set now for life? No. So, for example, if you have a pathogen that turns on an autoimmune disease like interstitial cystitis, we know one of the target proteins for interstitial cystitis is a. Uh, is tropomyosin antibodies. Right. Tropomyosin is an antibody to smooth muscles, and many people with interstitial have antibodies to their smooth muscles. And they could have had uh, a different pathogen turn on that tropomyosin response. But in, but once the um, pathogen is gone, there's antibodies that are produced against tropomyosin, um, and the pathogen, and there's cross-reactivity or similarity between the protein structure of the pathogen and tropomyosin. So now there's B cells for tropomyosin, and then when things activate antibody production, you can have a flare-up. So for example, shrimp has tropomyosin in there. So if you have interstitial cystitis or also you have colitis and you have tropomyosin antibodies, when you eat shrimp, 
you may, if you have sensitivity to shrimp and tryptomycin, you make tryptomycin antibodies, which then will flare up your interstitial cystitis. Right. Uh, a pathogen turn on antibodies, those antibodies can then cross-react with cell tissue, and you can have foods that have those similar food proteins, and you can have that reaction. So you get a bacterial infection, turn on the stitial cystitis, now those memory B cells are there for tryptomycin, then you can eat a food that has a similar amino acid sequence, then you get a trigger. So that's molecular mimicry works oh, against food proteins. Yeah, so I guess one of the, the tricks with managing autoimmune disease would be working out which are the cross-reactive proteins assaying them and then working out which foods or which triggers contain those. And that's part of their ongoing management. So we mapped out, we started with foods, we started mapped out thyroid um, with 200 food proteins. We published that journal of thyroid research. We just submitted a paper to a journal where we looked at chemicals that we found would have molecular memory with haptination of thyroid. And there's already a long list of pathogens, but we hope to do a, do a study where we look at multiple pathogens beyond what's been published already. And then the goal for us as researchers is to try to blueprint each autoimmune disease by their molecular mimicry. We're focusing on Hashimoto's first because it's the most common autoimmune disease. But in the future, when someone has an autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's, we can go, okay, well, you've already done these lifestyle things and you've already fixed your gut, you still have autoimmunity, and you're already on a restrictive diet, like let's say an autoimmune paleo diet. But let's see if there's any specific molecular mimicry chemical responses in food pathogens or food proteins or any pathogens that could be triggering your immune response. So that's the big picture. The big picture is to bleep each one out and then go through each one in more detail. Um, Detis, you'll be, you'll be coming to Australia in um, early yes. uh, 2020 for the Bioceuticals Research Symposium. What sort of things will you be yes. teaching practitioners there? Obviously, there's a lecture, but then there's going to be some, some case study and, and some hardcore learning there. What sort of things do you want practitioners to walk away with? Well, I think I want to really, um, really talk about the realistic model of practice too many times you have patients and they present and they show you a perfect case and rainbows come out and everything's perfect and they're amazing and they're awesome and well, you know, and I hate that. I'd like to really show people the difficulty and the realities of practice, especially things like autoimmunity. So um, I'm going to share with them real case videos of real patients, what they went through, the struggles, the ups and downs, and, and, and really talk about the real world uh, working through a clinical case uh, model. At the same time, you know, I spent half my time in practice and half my time in research. Uh, I've done um, extensive amount of research in autoimmunity and molecular mimicry and cross-reactivity and haptination and, and how we apply that in, in finding specific um, triggers for autoimmune disease and kind of taking all the complex literature and simplifying it for people that don't read journals all day and don't want to spend you know, all their time learning about uh, autoimmune research and, and, and all the new uh, concepts and just summarize it for them very quickly, very, very um, simply for them so they can use it in practice. So, I mean, there's definitely a role where a researcher has to simplify everything so practitioners can have a clinically useful model. And at the same time, the clinician, you want to, you know, really talk about what's realistic. So my goal in that conference is to really share my research and also share real-world clinical scenarios and, uh, and not have any hype. You know? Yeah. Professor Datis Karazian, Karazian, I cannot wait to hear from you, from you and learn from you at the 2020 Symposium. There's so much to learn. 
can't, but there's also so much to use uh, clinically. <laughs> I thank you so much for really opening our eyes on FX Medicine today. It's been great. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Registrations are now open for the 8th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Melbourne from the 3rd to the 5th of April 2020. To register, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab.